Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 17. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of the Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads and that they all may know that those things which were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourselves walk, you yourself walk orderly and keep the law of Moses. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except they should Keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Let's back up a couple of verses before our reading. And I want to just show you the warnings that Paul had received before he'd gone up to Jerusalem. In chapter 20, he called the Ephesian elders together. And in verse 20 of chapter 20, he says he had kept nothing back that was helpful. He proclaimed to you and talked to you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Go over to chapter 21 now and reading from verse 4. Now Paul is at, at Cyprus here, and he passed and went to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship unloaded her cargo at Tyre. And finding disciples... We stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Let's drop down to verse 11. Paul's now at Caesarea at the house of Philip the Evangelist who had four daughters who prophesied. And when he'd come, Agabus came from Jerusalem to Caesarea He came to us, he took Paul's belt, he bound him, his hands and his feet, and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt 
and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When they heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? And this is the verse that I really want us to concentrate on this morning. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What a place to be. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus that through his one and sufficient sacrifice, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Lord, we are so grateful this morning that he took not some of our sin, but all of our sin was paid for on Calvary. Lord God, we are so grateful this morning that salvation is a free gift offered to all who will come and humble themselves before the cross and confess their sin and place their faith in Christ. Father, this morning we are all so grateful that you do not reward us according to our iniquity. But God, that as far as heaven is above the earth, so great is your mercy. We thank you that as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth those who fear him. God, we are so thankful this morning that you remember our frame, that we are but dust. God, I am so thankful this morning for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May the love of Christ, his love, and our love for him in return, may it compel us to live for him. I pray, Father, that this mindset, which was in the Savior, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. I pray, Father, that that would be written in our hearts. It would be evident in our lives that we could say with the Apostle Paul that I'm not only ready to be bound, but I am ready to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, when we understand the cross when we understand the significance of sin against a holy God, may you help us to daily surrender ourselves to your full control. Lord, what a blessed place that is to be when we're no longer bound by our circumstances, we're no longer bound by what people think about us, our reputations, our possessions, what we do have and what we don't have. Lord, when we are at your disposal, we are really free. 
Help us to understand this today and help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this morning, I, I want to just talk to you about the blessedness of full surrender. Coming to that place in your life where you can let go and let God lead. Um, this just doesn't happen overnight. I think it happens gradually as we daily die to self. And as I look at mature believers, people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time and growing in Christ-likeness, there's this sense of, I can trust God no matter what. There's this place of peace and tranquility that whatever comes into their life, they're ready for it. They're, they're, their apple cart is not turned over when tragic news comes or when their things don't go their way. They're just able to respond in a spirit-filled way to surrender it and to give it to Christ. That's a blessed place to be. And that's what we were created to be like. When God placed us in the garden, there was complete peace with God and complete peace with one another. God gave us health. God gave us relationships that are beautiful. God gave us everything to freely eat of in the garden. God gave us a creation that was just unbelievably beautiful. All for our pleasure. But there was one place that God said, I reserve this for myself alone. And he said, I'm going to test you to see if this is really your heart. I'm going to give you one simple commandment. The tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. You don't eat of that. You trust me. You trust me because I want to be enshrined in the heart of mankind. That's what God wants. He wants us to open up our hearts to say, God, you alone are worthy to sit on the throne of my heart. Nothing else is. And when sin came into this world, tragically, all those beautiful things that God gave us, we ruined it and kicked God off the throne. And those beautiful things that God gave us, the fruits, our labor, our relationships, our gifts, our talents, we end up putting those things on the throne instead of God. And what does it lead to? It leads to unsatisfied living. It leads to disappointment. It leads to discouragement. It leads to self-centeredness and brokenness. Until we get it right and put God back on the throne. There's only one way to do that. And it's simple. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is what reconciles us to God. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that crucifies the old man. It's not my striving. 
It's not my self-discipline. It's my surrender to the cross. Jesus put it like this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For the man who loves his life and wants to put all those things on the throne of his life, he will lose it. But he who will lose his life and kick all those things that don't belong on the throne of your heart and replace it with Jesus, he says, you'll gain your life. Paul had learned that spiritual principle. And he wrote about it in Galatians chapter 2. And he says, I have been, perfect tense, And it's translated in the New King James, I am crucified because it's a present reality. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which he now lives in the flesh, he lives by the faith of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. It is the cross that allows us to live this surrendered life, to enjoy the blessedness of that place with Christ. As Paul closed that letter to the Galatians, he says, God forbid that I should boast. God forbid that I should glory in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know all of you, and I know you personally, and I thank God for that. And I know where you struggle. I know the temptations that you face. And I know my life and I know my frailties. And I want to encourage you this morning, the path of that blessedness isn't through you striving and trying harder. It's through surrender to the cross. One of my favorite authors is A.W. Tozer. And he wrote this. We must go to the cross and root out all sense of possessing. And in here is the paradox of finding true life. Paul wrote it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. He says, I'm as unknown, yet well known. I'm dying, and yet behold, we live. As chastened, but never killed. As sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. As poor, and yet making many rich. As having nothing, but possessing all things. What a blessedness to get to that point in your life where you hold everything loosely in the hands of Jesus And say, God, it's all yours. You've given it to me, and I hold it loosely for you to take it as you will. I possess and I hold absolutely nothing. And when I do that, God says, you've got everything. You've got what really counts in life. And Paul had come to that place where he said, why do you weep? Why do you break my heart? It's not about me. I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem and be bound, but I am ready to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, city after city, prophet after prophet, they kept coming up to him saying, 
Don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you when you get there. They're going to hand you over to the Gentiles. And the irony of all of this is that Paul wanted desperately to get to the city of Rome after he left Jerusalem. Now, how in the world is he going to get to Jerusalem if they're going to bind him and hand him over to the Gentiles? It's a paradox, isn't it? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see this unfold as we, as we go through the passage this morning and, and look at some other texts. But God uses surrendered servants. God has always used those who are surrendered before him. And God will use us in amazing ways when we surrender to him. Let's look at our passage when Paul went up to Jerusalem. He called all them together, and on the following day, verse 18, chapter 21, verse 18, on the following day, they were all present, James there with them, all the elders, and when he gathered them, he greeted them, and he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That's a sermon right there, isn't it? He told them in detail. He told them what God had done. God had done it among lost pagans. And God had done it through the ministry of Paul. The word for ministry is the word deacon. It wasn't what we think of as a minister. It wasn't some position. It was through his deacon service that God worked. So let's just kind of break this verse down. God is working through his surrendered servants, isn't he? And Paul goes and he tells them in detail. The New American Standard says one by one. The um, Old King James, if you still use that beautiful translation, says particularly. Every little particular thing Paul told them. The tense is on and on and on. It's like Paul was unwinding this movie picture for them so that they could see what God does through somebody who is fully surrendered. And he probably began from the last time that he saw these men at Jerusalem, James and the elders, And I can just imagine Paul going in and gathering these guys together and say, I want to tell you what happened in the city of Philippi. Let me tell you what God did. God did it. There was this demon girl, and God miraculously healed her. And then they arrested me because the owner of that slave girl lost his profit. And then you know what they did? They beat me and Silas. And they threw us in the stocks. And instead of complaining, we laid there in jail and we prayed and we worshiped God. This is a man who was fully surrendered to God. And then Paul begins to tell them, and you know what God did? God began to shake that prison cell in the middle of the night. And all the doors opened, our chains fell off. The prisoners were listening, the Philippian jailer was listening. He ran in and was about ready to kill himself. And I said, no, don't do that. 
And Paul is giving detail one by one of all these things that happened. And the Philippian jailer received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He says, what do I need to do to get saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we left Philippi, and he began in detail to tell what happened in Thessalonica. He says, yeah, a riot broke out there. They arrested a guy named Jason, and we had to flee. But the Jews were so angry because the Gentiles were coming to faith, and we went down to the city of Berea. And the people there were so open-minded, and they opened up the Bible, and they looked with us daily, and they were becoming followers of Jesus because they were searching the Scripture. The people from Thessalonica, the Jews that were so angry that the Gentiles were bleeding, they chased us out of Berea. I found myself in Athens, and you won't believe what God did there. Here I am in the center of pagan philosophy. The Epicureans and the Stoics, they invited me to preach at the Oropagus. And I got to give the gospel in the city of Athens. God is so awesome. God is incredible. And then I left Athens, and I went down to Corinth, and I stayed for 18 months. And in the middle of the night, God spoke to me in a vision. He says, stay there, Paul, because I've got many people in this city. And then I found myself at Ephesus, and I got to Ephesus, and I ran into six, no, a dozen guys who were disciples of John the Baptist, and I told them the gospel, and they got saved. And then I went into the synagogue, and I got to preach for three months in the synagogue. And the Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. And the Jews got so mad that they kicked me out of the synagogue. And a guy named Tyrannius opened up his school. And for two years, I got to preach the gospel. And they glorified God because what he was doing through a surrendered servant. It's beautiful what God does. When you talk to somebody who surrendered to God, last night I got to sit around the dinner table and talk to a, a couple that retired from the military, worked 25, 24, 28 years. I can't remember, 24 or 28. But instead of retiring and doing what most of us like to do when we retire and finding a golf course, he went back to work and now is a missionary to the military and he reported what God was doing through him and we glorified God for what he's doing. And you know what? It's not full-time ministers. In fact, I don't like that, that term, you know, I'm in full-time Christian service. Are you a believer this morning? Are you a follower of Jesus? And raise your hand because you are in full-time Christian service. Every one of you are in full-time Christian service, and God wants to work marvelously through your life because God works through people who are totally surrendered to him. Now, it doesn't take long for sometimes that ministry to be misunderstood, and that's exactly what happened to Paul. They misunderstood what he was doing and his intentions and his ministry. So in verse 20, it says, you see, brother, how many myriads of the Jews there are who have believed. Now, that's good news. There's thousands of Jews all over. Now, Paul is back at the city of Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost was the second annual feast that they were required to come to. The first one was Passover. So the city of Jerusalem is filled with Jews all over the Roman Empire. And these Jewish people are still very, very zealous for all the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law, the dietary laws, and, and, and circumcision, and all these things. And Paul is there with them. 
And he says, they have been informed about you, verse 21, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and that they ought not to circumcise their children and to walk according to the customs. So there's this huge misunderstanding about Paul's ministry. This guy who's totally surrendered. People don't get it. People don't understand what he's all about. And people are going to misunderstand and misrepresent us. But what does Paul do instead of reacting He just takes it in and says, you know what, God, how can I use this? You see, that's a real indicator when you're fully surrendered. You don't just react to the situation. And I am so guilty of this. Every time I do, it's a reminder that I am not surrendered to God. When I go out and I turn over the key of my truck and it doesn't work, When I drive home and my car stops on Washington Avenue and I start to fret and start to worry, I know I am not surrendered to God because I'm trying to figure out what do I need to do to fix all this. And God says, I've got it all taken care of. Maybe I want you to witness to Manny, the mechanic. (laughs) Maybe I've got something better planned out for you. And I react in a way that's... It's unbiblical, unyielded. And yet Paul, as a servant, he was set free to see God's bigger picture. God, what do you want me to do now that I'm back in Jerusalem? And there's all these Jewish people who are misunderstanding and misrepresenting my ministry. Well, what is the big picture for you and I? The eternal picture is this, unity. That's what Paul saw here. God was telling Paul, you need to seek unity with these Jewish believers. You need to seek peace. You need to seek edification. You need to promote the needs of the weaker spiritual brother so that they can grow. And Paul, you need to reach as many people as you can for Jesus Christ. That's the big picture in our lives that God wants us to see. And when we are fully surrendered, we start to see that picture. So let's look at what Paul does here. I want to give you four principles that Paul lays out for us in this passage that goes along with a letter that he wrote to the Romans. Paul didn't just preach to people. Paul didn't just write letters to people and tell them what to do. Paul lived it and Paul did it. So let's look at what Paul does here. The first principle that I want you to to, to recognize is the principle of embracing the weaker brother, the principle of embracing the weaker Christian, the young Christian who's just new in his faith. He's got a lot of hang-ups. He's got a lot of things that cause him to stumble, a lot of things that he doesn't understand, yet the deep things of God. And you, as a more mature believer, you understand your freedoms. You understand your liberty. You understand what it means to grow in grace and in knowledge and to be able to walk without a bunch of rules and and regulations in your life because you're a mature believer. And Paul recognizes here this principle of embracing a weaker believer. He wrote that to the Romans in Romans 14, verse 1. He says, Him who is weak in the faith receive, but not over doubtful disputations. That word doubtful disputations means not to judge over people judge people over their opinions, or judge people over their scruples that may be a little bit different from yours. 
You know, and God is bringing a, a tapestry together at North Valley Bible Church. It's, it's, a, it's a different group of people. People who like to raise their hands in worship. People who like the King James Bible. People who like the New American Standard Bible. And you know what? We're all different. And we are to receive one another as God receives us. The second thing, Paul submitted his rights and his authority as an apostle. He was willing to submit because he realized that none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Paul realizes here that what he does affects other people. A mature Christian who's totally surrendered knows that. He says, you know what, it's not about me and my life about what I want to do right now. I mean, can you imagine what Paul might have been thinking? I know I'm conjecturing here, but this guy has just been on the mission field. He has hazarded his life for Christ. They have stoned him and left him for dead in some cities. They've thrown him in jail in other cities and beat him unlawfully as a Roman. He has seen this amazing success, God working through him, and now they tell him, Paul, you do what we tell you to do. We've got four guys who've taken a Nazarite vow. Paul, we want you to pay their expense. Paul, we want you to take them in the temple and you do all the Jewish ritual that you're supposed to do. And Paul says, I'm an apostle. I don't need to do this. I don't need to prove myself to anybody. No, that's not what Paul said. Paul willingly submitted himself to what they asked him to do. What an example for you and I. For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. Don't follow your inclinations without regard to how it will affect someone else. Third principle. Paul, they said, Paul, let's keep looking at this passage here. Therefore, do what we tell you. Take this vow so that they will know that you yourselves, I'm reading from verse 24, that you yourselves walk orderly and keep the law. What was the principle that's at play here? Paul was following the principle of not being a stumbling block. Paul was going to keep the law even though Paul knew that he didn't have to keep the law. And there was only one thing that motivated him here, and that was that Paul did not want to be a stumbling block to other Jewish Christians. We know that you follow the law, Paul. You've submitted to these things. Don't be a stumbling block. So he's going to go in. He's going to pay their vows. Let us therefore judge one another. I'm sorry. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. You see, Paul was totally surrendered to God. Paul saw the bigger picture of peace, unity, edification, bearing with a weaker brother so that he can grow because he was surrendered to God. It wasn't his agenda when he went back to Jerusalem. It was how he could minister and to serve others. The fourth principle that we see here that Paul observed is that he did everything he could in order to reach as many people as he could. 
Verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided that they should observe no such things. And when Paul was with the Gentiles, he lived just like the Gentiles did. He ate what the Gentiles ate, and he told them, you don't need to circumcise your children. You don't need to keep the dietary laws. You don't need to keep the ceremonial laws. He said, all of those things have been fulfilled for you in Jesus Christ. And I want to reach you. But you know, if I'm around Jewish people, I'm going to observe those laws because I want to reach them for Christ as well. He says, I'm going to take Timothy with me and travel with Timothy. And I'm going to have Timothy circumcised. So that Timothy can go into the synagogue with me and we can reach as many Jewish people as we can. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. For though I am free from all men, yet I have made myself a slave unto all. That I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became a Jew that I might gain the Jew. To them that are under the law as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, not as without law to Christ, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became as the weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that by all means I might save some. So Paul, because he was surrendered to God, was set free to see the big picture that God wanted him to see. In summary here, I want to just say, when is it legitimate to surrender your Christian liberty? When is it a legitimate thing to, to, to give up on your Christian liberty? Four things I just want to, that maybe that'll help you. When you do not violate your conscience. If you're giving up your liberty but that thing violates your conscience, then don't do it. But by giving up your liberty, it is not violating your conscience. And you're saying, you know what? I've got a, a conviction about this, so I'm not going to give this liberty up. That's one time where it's legitimate not to. Second, when they help to remove a stumbling block, that's a time to give up your Christian liberty when you know but by doing that, it will remove a stumbling block for someone else. Three, when you assist in promoting peace. And four, when you are building up the body of Christ. Those are times where you say, you know what, I can yield my Christian liberty. Now, when is it an illegitimate time to give up your Christian liberty? When you tend to mislead a weaker brother and he thinks that his position is actually biblical. That's when you say, no, I, I can't give up this Christian liberty because it's going to make them think that this legalistic thing is actually a good thing. And you say, no, I want to help that person understand this. Second, when you don't give up a Christian liberty is when you have a desire only for peace and you only want to avoid a conflict at the sake of truth. I think we're all guilty of that. You say, you know what, I'm going to give up this Christian liberty just because I want to get along with this guy, but I'm, in doing so, I'm going to forsake truth. This is exactly what Peter did. Peter was eating with a bunch of Gentiles. A group of Jews come from James. And, he says, and Peter knew he had the Christian liberty to eat with those guys, but he says, you know what, I just want to have peace here. I don't want any conflict. So he said, uh, let's go over here and eat. 
And you Gentiles, you eat over there. And Paul had to confront him to the face. He says, because you are compromising truth. That's another time when you don't want to yield your Christian liberty. And a third principle, it's very important. When you give up this Christian liberty and you offend, offend just as many people as you're trying to please. <laughs> because you can't please everybody. You please God first of all and not man. My third point this morning, when you're fully surrendered, God does a paradox in your life. Now, I don't get this from this paragraph. You have to read a little bit more. We already read this morning in our introduction that Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. I didn't read that, so let's go over and read that. I'm sorry. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 19 and verse 21. They wanted him to stay a long time at Ephesus, and he'd already stayed long enough, and now he needs to get back to Jerusalem for this feast, but he had this longing desire to go to the city of Rome. This is the capital of the entire empire. As a strategic place, this is where a missionary wants to go. If he can affect the city of Rome, it can permeate the entire empire. And Paul knew that. So Acts 19, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. This is what I wanted you to see. Saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. That word must... It's a three little three word in Greek, but it means I have to. I have to get to Rome. It's the same little word that Jesus used with Nicodemus. You must be born again. It's not just I want to get to Rome. I must see Rome. Now here's the paradox. If I go to Jerusalem... They are going to bind me there. My vision and my desire and my need to get to Rome may never happen. And here's a beautiful paradox. We're not going to get to all of it this Sunday, maybe next week or maybe the following week. I don't know. I'm not going to be in a hurry anymore. <laughs> but here's the beauty. When Paul went back, what happened to him? Y'all anyway. <laughs> well, tell the rest of the story already, Jeremy. <laughs> yes, he was. But first of all, he goes into the temple. He does exactly what they ask him to do. He shaves his hair. He pays the expense for these other guys. He says, I, I'm, I'm doing exactly what you wanted me to do. I'm trying to reach these Jews. And then somebody says, this guy has brought Greeks into the temple. Another lie. They begin to kill Paul. They had to stop beating him. Then he was arrested. And through that arrest, you know what he got to do? He got to stand up. Here, it's the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost, and they, they, they're dragging him out of the barracks, thinking, who is this guy? They don't even know who he is. And he turns around to the Roman soldier and speaks Greek to him. He says, you can speak Greek? I thought you was an Egyptian guy. He says, no, I, I'm from Tarsus, no obscure city. And he says, let me address the crowd. And so Paul gets to address this entire 
crowd and preach the gospel. Now he gets to the point where he uses the word Gentile and they go berserk and they're ready to kill him again. Start throwing dirt in the air. Says, what? So they drag him off and the very next day, you know what Paul gets to do? He gets to preach to the entire Sanhedrin about Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, how in the world is he going to get to Rome? He, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But Paul's desire. Now, why did Paul have such a passionate desire, passionate desire to get to Rome? Well, let's, let's just look at that real quick. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 1. And we can see what Paul's intentions and why he wanted to get there and how this paradox of actually going to Jerusalem was his ticket to Rome. Romans chapter 1, 7 through 15. Romans 1, 7 through 15. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, for your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means now at last I might find my way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And here's the result of imparting spiritual gifts to people, so that you may be established. And when people are established and people are strong, that is that they A, may be encouraged together with you by our Mutual faith, both you and me, impart spiritual gifts. People grow, people are established, and then I've got a brother who is like iron sharpening iron. Paul says, I want to get there for all of this. Now he says, I want you to know, brother, don't be ignorant of this, that I often planned to come to you, but I was hindered up until now. And here's another reason, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I want to see the gospel go to them. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as within me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Six things. I don't expect you to remember them, but I just want to just point these out. Paul was in constant prayer, constant prayer that God would give him an opportunity to get back to Rome or get to Rome in the first place. His purpose was to impart spiritual gifts to people to the extent that they might be stronger than their faith so that they could encourage one another. Fourth, Paul wanted to, had planned to get there, but his plans had been hindered. His purpose was to see greater fruit in evangelism among the Gentiles. He had resolved to live as a debtor to all men. Paul was fully surrendered. And by going to Jerusalem, God brought that paradox about. Let's go over to Acts again in chapter 23. It's a good thing Romans and Acts are close together. We can get back over quick, huh? If you're cheating on your phone like Ron. (laughs) Okay, Acts 23. 
and verse 11. This is after his address to the Sanhedrin. And again, they're, they're, they're fearful that Paul's going to get torn in pieces <laughs> by these two factions of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And in the middle of the night, this is what the Lord tells Paul, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Paul, be of good cheer. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so must you also bear witness at Rome. The paradox of surrendering it all to God, God was going to get him to Rome where he desperately wanted to be. You don't have to fear giving everything over to God, like God is going to put you in a place where you don't want to go. Send you to Utah, right, John? (laughs) Because that is the place of blessing. That is where God wants you. The blessedness of possessing nothing. The blessedness of full surrender. D.L. Moody is famous for a quote, It says something like this. I'll probably butcher it a bit. The world has yet to see what God can do through an individual or through a man who is fully consecrated to him. D.L. Moody is credited with that, but actually the man who said it, we don't even know who it was. It was a Baptist pastor in Dublin, Ireland, that said that to D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody got on the voyage back to America, and he pondered that, and he pondered that, and he pondered that. God, what could you do with my life if I was fully consecrated to you? And D.L. Moody, throughout his lifetime, saw tens of thousands, literally, Come to faith in Jesus Christ through his crusades and through his evangelistic preaching. And he established the Moody Bible Institute downtown Chicago that has sent out Christian workers all over this world for generation after generation after generation. What will God do through a small group of people who say, God, we are surrendered to you? God, use me. God, let me see the big picture of what you're doing and not my little view of life. And God, help me by faith to trust this paradox that if I yield it all to you, you will put me exactly where I want to be and where you can use me most effectively. The blessedness of possessing nothing. We will experience God using us in unusual ways. We will have a different lens when we see our circumstances. And when we lose our life for the kingdom, that's when we gain it. I want to end again with another quote from A.W. Tozer. He describes this spiritual state of possessing nothing as this. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it 
when I've given everything to God, I won't need for fair circumstances to come into my life. I will have no need for the sun to shine into my heart. For thyself will be the light of it, and there shall be no night there. The blessedness of full surrender to God. Let's close in prayer. Father, none of us are ever going to reach that, this side of heaven. Even the Apostle Paul said, I have not attained, but I strive after that I may apprehend that for which also I've been apprehended of Christ. Not that I've already apprehended or already were perfect, but forgetting those things that are behind, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Father, the secret to a surrendered life this morning isn't for us to strive and to work and to strategize. The plan is simple. It's to take every one of my desires, every one of my self-centered, and take them to the cross of Jesus. And to say, like the apostle said, I am, I have been crucified with Christ I no longer live, but Christ now lives in and through me. Father, I pray that we will experience this and see your hand in our lives so that you receive the glory. Help us, God, to see the big picture of what you're doing and help us to trust you implicitly that if I surrender all, that, God, you will paradoxically give me everything possessing nothing, and yet having all things. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.